Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And uh, in this episode, we are going to dig down deep into the bones of the earth. Okay. Uh, we're we're going we're gonna to call to mind uh, a quote from uh, uh, J.R.R. Tolkien's The Fellowship of the Ring. Moria, Moria, wonder of the northern world. Too deep we delved there and woke the nameless fear. Okay. So is this an episode about the Balrog? No. I mean, not d- directly. I mean, we we might ponder as we uh, we read here what the the metaphorical Balrog might be in all of this. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but it is going to be an episode about about digging in the earth, about 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 mining down, digging down, and just how deep we've gotten. And then what do we do in the earth? What's what is what 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 is Homo sapiens business? beneath the surface of the earth after all. You know what? I just recently uh, went to the Atlanta Zoo, mm-hmm. and I hadn't been there since I was a kid. And it was, first of all, it's fantastic. Yeah. The Atlanta Zoo is wonderful. But uh, one of the things that struck me the most was when I went into the little uh, area where they have the places where you can view the naked mole rats. Oh, yes. They're wonderful. Uh, where there is – the smell is overwhelming. Uh, there's this odd odor, but just looking at them, they are one of the strangest-looking creatures on Earth. They are these naked, wrinkly, uh, kind of uh, rosy pink things with long teeth lying in puddles, appearing to have some kind of hive mind, and and frequently, at least when I was looking at them, chewing on each other, just gnawing on one another mm-hmm. beneath the ground. And the, these are true, like, subterranean creatures. We are not that. We're designed to live on the surface, but we do a lot more underground venturing than most other permanent surface dwellers do. Absolutely. And on the subject of of underground, true underground evolution and the evolution of burrowing species, I would like to come back to that because uh, we actually have um, an author in the Atlanta area who wrote a book about uh, the evolution of burrowing creatures. Oh, yeah? And uh, yeah, and, and I keep meaning to, to reach out and see about having him on the show to chat with us about it. Oh, that'd be great. Yeah, he's the one who actually mentions Tremors, the movie, in the book. <laughs> so you know you know that he's our people. Uh, but uh, speaking of, of our people uh, and speaking of, of underground creatures, one thing I was thinking about too is how if you look to the fictional world of subterranean humanoids, mm-hmm. we see th- th- there's always – there's pretty strict dichotomy, right? On one hand, you have the debased underworld dwellers. You have uh, the mole men, the crawlers from the descent, the morlocks from the time machine. Mm-hmm. You have uh, – or one of my other favorites uh, uh, in terms of just cave-dwelling creatures, 1972's Gargoyles. I don't know this. this, no. Oh, it's terrible. Some wonderful gargoyle costumes, come, uh, creatures coming out of uh, the deserts and uh, the desert caves and kidnapping people, that sort of thing. Well, I usually think of gargoyles as uh, as flying. Well, yeah, but they live in caves in this particular movie. They oh, got to okay. live somewhere. Where are they going to live? In the middle of the desert on a skyscraper? No. That's true. I guess bats live in caves and they fly. Yeah, they're basically – It's more. it would have made more sense if they were bat people instead of gargoyles, but um, – Hey, uh, I invite everyone to 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 see this film for the for themselves. the The ideal way to see this film, I think, was probably at three p.m. on a Sunday on TBS uh, back in the day. But you can watch it through modern means as well. Oh, I just looked it up. These are some striking images. Yes, the gargoyle is almost Krampus looking. It is. Yeah, 
Now, of course, the Morlocks, though, are really more of the iconic underground dweller, though, mm-hmm. from H.G. Uh, Wells' The Time Machine. Yeah, though, the interesting thing about them, so you're saying that there are some um, – uh, some fantasy and sci-fi works where underground humanoid-type creatures are presented as like uh, in some way a, like a horrible deviant version of us. Where right. The Morlocks are the, sort of the villains of the time machine. But they're also – it's funny. In, in the novel, the Morlocks are like the intelligent creatures that use technology. And it's the the gentle surface-dwelling Eloi who are like kind of oh, yeah, they're the placid yeah. and incurious and sort of bovine. Yes. But then we also have works where the creatures who live underground are the more refined humanoids. Yeah. So um, we could, of course, look to Middle Earth and the dwarf lords in their halls of stone. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they're not elevated to the same level as the elves, uh, but but still, they're an advanced civilization that that seem to uh, to to love a good underground. Uh, um, empire. Uh, then you have things like you have in a, you have other groups like the Drow and Dungeons and Dragons, uh, the Non Men and R. Scott Baker's Second Apocalypse Saga, the mutants in Beneath the Planet of the Apes. Oh yeah, they worship a giant bomb. Yeah, they're great and they have psychic powers, and yet we have not seen them in any of these recent uh, Planet of the Apes movies. Uh, also, uh, in the Fallout games, you have the Vault Dwellers. They're not permanent to underground dwellers, but they have dwelt underground for a long period of time and have – and are now, uh, you know, emerging into the surface world to retake it. Well, yeah, I think clearly in a lot of these like science fiction works, the underground humanoids, it's supposed to be something symbolic. It shows right. like a, a sort of like retreat into some kind of other nature. It, uh, it is a, a physical sign that something has changed. Mm-hmm. And I think part, uh, another part of the appeal is that that living below ground or in caves or, or vaults is something that seems like it should be rather removed from the sort of homes that most of us keep. And yet, one of the curious things is that underground dwellings are also a part of our past. Uh, they're, they're part of our present. And uh, depending on where we go in this solar system, uh, they may be a part, an important part of our future. Yeah. So let's take a minute just to to talk about humanity's history in the depths of the earth. Okay. So limestone caves provided shelter for the Neanderthals of the Ice Age, uh, and early humans too made use of caves for shelter, but also for burial and for sacred rites. Yeah, I was looking at examples of this. One example of, uh, uh, I think, the religious significance of deep cave dwellings, especially by Neanderthals, is to be found in the Brunichel Cave of southwestern France. Uh, so to, to cite a journal article, we've got one in Nature here from 2016 called Early Neanderthal Constructions Deep in, Cru- in Brunichel Cave in Southwestern France uh, by Jobert et al. And in this study, archaeologists reported the discovery of ring-shaped patterns of broken stalagmites made from about 400 pieces of stalagmite that are that were found deep in the cave. And we don't know what these ring-shaped structures were for, but it's clear they're artificial in origin. They were made by, by humans, and they were the site of ancient fires where, like, there are some sections that are burned and charred, and there are also pieces of burned bone mixed in with them. And a 
uranium dating series combined with some other methods gives the structure an approximate age of 176.5 thousand years old, one of the oldest known human structures. And this was pretty deep down too, right? Oh, extremely, yeah. This was found 336 meters down from the entrance of the cave. That's over uh, 1,100 feet down, showing that the Neanderthals who made these rings had mastered deep underground environments. Like, to go this far down is not something an animal would do lightly. You'd need to have an artificial light source to take with you. You probably need a plan and a way of organizing and understanding your spatial environment so you don't get stuck down there. And the big question is, what were the rings for? We had these rings over 1,000 feet down underground. A common explanation would be, well, it's maybe religious in nature. Somebody's burning fires with rings of stone down in the dark uh, over a thousand feet underground, right? Must be for some kind of ritual. We don't really know, but it's a fascinating question. And I think the most common answer is probably that it had something to do with with an with a loss to history unknown Neanderthal religion. Mm. So there yeah, so there was there's a sacred reason to go down into the depths. Presumably, or maybe there was just some other reason that we don't understand. It doesn't it's not clear uh, is it's not easy to determine that these this like circle would serve a practical purpose. I'm not sure what you'd use it for as a tool or anything like that. Yeah. Or why it would need to be so far down if you did. It almost it really asks for a kind of symbolic interpretation. Yeah. Now, in terms of more readily accessed uh, portions of a cave, uh, stuff closer to the surface, mm -hmm. it's easier – it's easy for us to, to think, well, you know, these are the kind of early primitive shelters one might use and then you would quickly evolve beyond that. You would reach the point where it just makes more sense to depend on tents and buildings for your shelter. Um, and then you would we would maybe only stick to the depths for you know things that are religious in nature like catacombs or or perhaps uh, bomb shelters in some cases or basements. I mean, uh, it's uh, it's easy to think that there would just come a time where nobody lives underground anymore unless you absolutely have to. Well, yeah, and there'd be several reasons for this. I mean, one would be the advent of settled civilization mm -hmm. because uh, it's not that there are no settled civilizations that involve caves. Some of them do involve caves, but generally there, there's a limited number of caves out there, so you can't just like keep filling up caves. You need to like build your own structures to support an expanding population. And caves are not necessarily near where you can do your agriculture. Right, and then if you're expanding on caves or, or setting out to build your own caves in the form of artificial tunnels, it takes a fair amount of, uh, of effort. You have to have considerable resources, technological know-how, and you have to depend on the rock that you're working with being uh, the right temperament for what you're trying to build. However, we do see all of these things line up uh, in really to a fascinating degree with some of these cave cities uh, in modern-day Turkey. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I was, was not really all that familiar with these uh, prior to researching for this episode, but they are, they are amazing. Uh, one in particular is the, the city of uh, uh, Dirinkuyu. Uh, this is a, a, a complex of hand-dug tunnels that dive down 60 meters or 200 feet um, beneath uh, – that's just roughly 18 stories beneath the surface and would have housed an estimated 20,000 people during its heyday. It contained homes, schools, even a winery. 
And uh, it's likely that these tunnels were begun around 700 BCE. And while it eventually ceased to be a functional, fully functional city, it continued to serve as a place of refuge well into modern times, a place that surface dwellers knew they could, they could flee to and hide in if surface tensions were, uh, were, were too problematic. Yeah, and it seems to be worth noting that this is the, what the majority of these Turkish underground uh, dwellings were primarily used for. It kind of calls to mind to go back to Lord of the Rings, like Helm's Deep, right? Mm -hmm. It's a place where uh, if your civilization is attacked, you can retreat down below the surface in order and seal up the walls with stone until the war passes on or, or the danger is gone and then you reemerge. Right, which makes me wonder about the Neanderthal uh, mystery from earlier. Like to what extent was that a way to survive uh, the the new people, you know, the inheritors, to uh, to, to flee down into depths that uh, that other uh, certainly surface predators, but maybe even uh, these newer hominid species would not uh, bother with. Hmm. Now that'd be a good plot for a novel, but I think it is the case that Homo sapiens are not believed to have been in the area at this point. Oh no, no, for, for purely Hollywood reasons, oh, okay. it would be like a, a reverse descent. Yeah. Instead of it being uh, poor hapless humanoids uh, dealing with underground monsters, our underground monsters are the heroes. <laughs> There you go. Do, for the Descent 3, that would be actually a pretty good uh, uh, way to frame it. So again, this is just one of, um, uh, of several underground cities that you find in this region. There's also the Kaimaki underground city, the Oskonok underground city. There's the Mazi underground city. And uh, there are some interesting illustrations of these online that really just drive home what we're talking about. We're not talking about like just a few chambers. We're talking about like multiple stories of underground uh, habitat. Yeah. It's a luxury mine. <laughs> we should also point out that cave dwellings continue uh, uh, to this day in parts of the world, such as with Wadix, a uh, southern Spanish region containing around 2,000 caves that have been used as homes for generations. And you look at pictures of these and it's really quite uh, uh, the, the design is very uh, interesting to look at because in many cases, like the walls are painted. They look like rooms in 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 home, you know, they they don't don't look like cave dwellers. They look like relatively modern uh, people living in uh, a shelter that just happens to be part of a naturally occurring cave. Well, there are also still uh, underground homes in Tunisia. In fact, some of these underground homes make an appearance in the first Star Wars movie. Oh, you? yeah. So Luke's house mm -hmm. in. Uh, the first Star Wars is, you know, uh, Uncle Owen and Aunt Beru, where they live. That's sort of modeled after a type of Tunisian dwelling where there is a central crater-type structure. It's like a big pit in the ground. And then around the ring of the crater, there are dugout rooms that you can go into. Very interesting. I didn't realize that. I always thought it was just an elaborate set, I guess, or an actual space house. I didn't think about the idea that this would be uh, an actual home or based upon an actual home design from that region. Uh, there's a cool photo gallery on, on the Atlantic website that, that documents uh, some of what these houses look like in more recent decades. Cool. Uh, and there are, of course, other plenty of other examples we can point to of sporadic underground dwellings. Uh, there are parts of Australia where you still see a fair number of underground dwellings. Uh, mm. And then I feel like, at least when I was growing up, there were at least a couple of underground houses uh, in the county uh, where I lived because there, were a, there was a lot of tornadic activity in the region. <laughs> uh -huh. and, and there was at least one house where it's like somebody was like, ah, screw it, I'm not putting up with this fear of tornadoes anymore. I'm living under the ground. And then they did it. Wow. Yeah. 
In fact, I think I knew somebody who lived in an underground house in southern middle Tennessee. It's all basement. It's all basement, yeah. Well, I guess that has certain advantages. It probably has certain disadvantages, too. I would I would think, for example, the lack of exposure to sunlight would eventually psychologically get to you. Oh, yes. And that's, a, that's of course, that's a whole other side of the equation when you start uh, imagining uh, permanent dwelling underground and mm-hmm. what that does to our circadian rhythms. Uh, but generally speaking, we're ta- thinking about creatures that are going to come back out again uh, yeah. uh, with, with, with regularity to uh, obtain the resources they need. You would kind of have to, right? Because, right. I mean, you mentioned that, for example, the city uh, in, in ancient Turkey, this underground city, it had like a winery, but it couldn't have a vineyard under the ground. Right, like and then be... they weren't making mushroom wine. Exactly. Um, likewise, you know, we mentioned the descent. Even the monsters in the descent were leaving their caves to pray because there's the whole scene where their bones piled up. They have this uh, – this is these midden heaps of uh, the things that they've been eating. And it's, it's, it's shown that they've been eating deer. Like they're going to the surface to hunt, uh-huh. presumably at night. So, yeah, we have plenty of underground habitats today. And also, certainly if you go to a major modern city, you go to New York City, you're going to find plenty of people living in basements. You know, there's they're, they're still an underground to many um, surface dwellings that rise into the sky. And then we have plenty of underground complexes that can uh, sometimes be repurposed as a shelter. For instance, we did uh, an episode talking about mosquitoes in the London underground and their evolution. And we in that, we discussed how during the Second World War, uh, the London underground, the subway system there, uh, was used as a bomb shelter. And then we have cases of uh, homeless individuals living in abandoned subways, railroads, flood sewage tunnels, heating shafts in uh, various metropolitan areas around the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you've ever seen the 2000, uh, year 2000 documentary Dark Days, uh, that documentary looks at people living in Freedom Tunnel in New York City during the mid-1990s. So thus far we've looked at religious reasons, survival reasons, um, infrastructure reasons even a little bit to Mm -hmm. dig tunnels under the earth. But another major reason to go digging around and crawling around under the earth like you're some manner of worm is, of course, to mine precious resources. Find that pot of gold. Exactly. In fact, we just talked recently in an episode of Invention the role that uh, copper mining might have played in the origins of wheel technology. That's right. So humans figured out that these were precious resources, that we could do things with them that gave us uh, uh, very important advantages over uh, our fellow humans. And in doing so, we quickly ate up all the uh, the easily acquired um, uh, deposits of these materials. So instead, we just start digging a tunnel. There's more down there. Right. And then you need, uh, you need things like, a, like wheels to remove them from those tunnels. Yeah. So we do find plenty of examples of pretty old mines in human history. Uh, the oldest mine in the world uh, is thought to be the, the Chert uh, Silica Mine at Nazlet uh, Sabaha in, uh, in Egypt. And it's estimated to have been in use uh, around 100,000 years ago. That's crazy old. Yeah. That's long before, like, settled civilization, long before agriculture. And it's in mining that we find some of the most incredible feats of tunneling, uh, even before the 20th century. So in Kimberley, South Africa, and South Africa is a region where we see some 
some pretty uh, incredible slash terrifying uh, feats in mining. Yeah. Um, between 1870 and 1940, 50,000 laborers moved 22 million tons of earth and reached a depth of 790 feet or 240 meters in search of diamonds. And this is a, a, an area, this is a, a, a dig that's currently known today as the Big Hole, and it is considered the largest hand-dug pit in the world. Hand-dug? Yes. Well, that yeah. Wow. So not using you know a bunch of um, uh, of mechanical aid. Yeah. Less impressive, certainly from the air, but still pretty impressive in its uh, depth is uh, is Woodingdon Well in the UK. Uh, it's an impressive hand dug uh, well that reaches uh, uh, one thousand two hundred eighty five feet or three hundred ninety meters into the earth. And uh, BBC's The Deepest Holes Dug by Hand points out that it's as deep as the Empire State Building is tall. Wow. And that's just a well. That's just a hand-dug well. Well, I think they did well. Uh, let's well, take, well, on that note, yes, let's definitely take a break. Folks, you should know, I just said that, and then I said we could cut it, and then I said it again. So it's got to be time for a break. All right, we're back. So let's talk about some of the, the modern-day marvels of digging in the dirt. Uh, modern mines are even more impressive because, of course, we have enhanced tunneling machinery uh-huh. uh, that allows us to d- dig deeper, uh, dig harder, if you will. And uh, also, of course, we have just better ability to blow up the rock and do so in a way that actually achieves our, our goals of digging deeper. And uh, and we mentioned South Africa earlier, and our most impressive mining operations uh, are to be found in South Africa, specifically the Tautona and Muponig mines. Uh, which have uh, broken through around uh, four kilometers or 2.5 miles of rock. So we're talking mines that are so deep that it takes an hour to elevate her down to the bottom. Wow. And you have to have a powerful, just an extremely powerful air conditioning system, essentially like shoveling um, uh, ice down to the depths because you have to balance out the 138 degree Fahrenheit, 59 degree Celsius temperatures in the surrounding rocks. Wow. So that's weird because I normally think of going down into a cave as uh, something that, that makes you nice and cool. I mean, I guess unless it's like cold outside. I mean, one great thing about an underground environment is that it tends to have a pretty regulated temperature if you're at a certain depth. Right. This is the wine cellar um, uh, uh, situation. Where, yeah. Yeah. Like it's a place where you can keep a standard temperature for whatever you're storing. Exactly. But uh, yeah, a basement, a wine cellar is probably not going to go two and a half miles down into the earth. Uh, by the way, with these mines, when we're talking about trying to balance out the, the temperatures, the air conditioning systems usually get temperatures uh, uh, back down to a more reasonable 82 degrees Fahrenheit, 28 degrees Celsius. <laughs> so it's still hot. Yes, it's hot. Uh, these are dangerous places. The uh, the Tautona mine today has some, uh, I read, 497 miles or 800 kilometers of tunnels, and it employs some 56,000 miners. And th- there are some uh, – whole books have been written about just the scale of these mining operations uh-huh. and – and the uh, like the the, tech, the technological details alone are pretty incredible. But then also the cultural uh, asides about um, uh, ghost miners, people who like sneak into the mines, and what percentage of say gold, for, for instance, is is uh, is pilfered. But then also how relatively little gold they have to actually mine out of the earth to get a profit. 
uh-huh. because uh, even though most of the gold on Earth, we mostly don't do much with it. Right. It's, it's, it's extremely useful in, in various uh, electronics, but mm-hmm. we're only using a fraction of that gold for those electronics purposes. The rest we're, uh, we're wearing and looking at and, and saying, oh, isn't that sparkly? You're putting in a vault. Yes. Well, I'm interested in the idea of – so that gold is down there where it's really hot and you got to pump in ice or air conditioning or something to keep you, keep yourself from overheating while you're trying to mine whatever this stuff is. Mm-hmm. And the, the question is why? Why does it get so hot when you go deep underground? I mean we all know that it does get hot as you go toward the center of the earth. But why does that happen? Yeah, and, and I should point out too that we've known about this for a while. It was known even in medieval times uh, – uh, as mining efforts made it obvious that that you know they weren't going quite that deep, but they were still going deep enough to tell that things were getting warmer. Uh-huh. And uh, so, first of all, there there's an incorrect answer to this question. Okay, and that is because you're getting closer and closer to hell, <laughs> and hell is really hot, right? Uh, well, not if you're Dante, right? Well, well, that's true because – Well, it, I guess there were hot parts and cold parts. Yes, but the very center was cold. When you get down to the Lake of Cositis, it is frozen uh, solid for sure. So, right. uh, so, yeah, I always fall back on Dante's model there. But the general idea is, is hell is hot. And, uh, and so one could mistakenly think, well, it's going to get hotter when you dig down to the earth because you're getting closer to all of that, uh, that what, what heavy, sweaty – uh, fiery brimstone. Uh, in fact, they're one of my favorite Art Bell clips out there. Art Bell, <laughs> uh, the, what was it, Coast to Coast, the old uh, uh, radio show where they often talked about uh, paranormal late, ideas. Yeah, like late night paranormal conspiracy radio stuff. Yeah. Uh, one of the my favorite clips was about the sounds of hell uh-huh. where they had this recording that was allegedly made uh, via microphone, which was lowered into hell via a hole in Siberia. Yeah, he got a note from a listener that uh, he had already reported on the fact that geologists had drilled a hole to hell. <laughs> and a listener got in touch with him and was like, hey, this story's true. My uncle collected videos and audio tapes of the paranormal, and he had an audio tape of this, and I copied it. Uh, and it originally, I think he said it came from the BBC or something, but uh, the, they, they had the evidence for hell and they were sitting on it. <laughs> this is a great hoax story. This is part of the, the whole well to hell hoax that was reported over and over by tabloids and religious publications in the 1980s and the 90s. Um, I've got a good quote here that is quoted in the Snopes article on this, on this hoax, but uh, this quote came from a book in 1993. Are you ready, Robert? Let's do it. Okay. Geologists working somewhere in remote Siberia had drilled a hole some 14.4 kilometers deep, about nine miles, when the drill bit suddenly began to rotate wildly. A Mr. Azakov, identified as the project's manager, was quoted as saying they decided that the center of the earth was hollow. Supposedly, the geologists measured temperatures of over 2,000 degrees in the hole. They lowered super-sensitive microphones to the bottom of the well and to their astonishment, they heard the sounds of thousands, perhaps millions of suffering souls screaming. Uh, So according to Snopes, uh, long before this ever appeared on the Art Bell show, it was reported on the Christian station, uh, then known as Trinity Broadcasting Network. I think that still exists, TBN. I I, I remember it. I don't know if it still exists. I think it does. It was in 1989. They they featured this story on TBN. It was also in the Weekly World News in 1992. Is Weekly World News the one with Bat Boy? I think it may have been, yes. 
But the Weekly World News version changed the location to Alaska and had the report ending with the claim that Satan himself came up out of the hole and that 13 workers were killed in the incident. Which, of course, is basically the minds of Moria all over again. They're basically right. saying the dwarves got too, too greedy yeah, and they then they dug released a ball rug. <laughs> yeah. But, but One of the workers yelled, you shall not pass. Yeah. I love it. This story too though. It's it's so ridiculous because it's like like here is a, an example of science proving our religious ideas, reli- proving our supernatural model uh, as accurate. But did those people before this story literally think that hell was physically underground? It's just like yeah. a place you could go to if you dig that deep? I don't this would be something worth exploring because I don't know. I don't get that 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 sense a lot from older religious writing that that hell is is literally in the ground. Um, I mean, I think there are some like if you go like to you know the original like mythical texts and yes. stuff. There's stuff like that. You know, that heaven is literally physically in the sky. That the underworld is literally physically under the ground. I don't. I didn't get the sense that many people believed that in the modern world. Like, were were people aligned with TBN? Did they, did they get this story and they're like, finally, you know, I knew there was something about this whole hell thing that didn't sit right with me, and it was like, well, I don't, you know, if it's down there, we would have proof of it. Somebody would have drilled down there and recorded the sounds of the the anguish. <laughs> well, people don't often drill that deep, as we'll discuss in a moment. So uh, about the sounds of hell, I don't know. Should we feature? Should we feature this recording at all on the podcast? Oh yes, let's do it. Here's a taste. Uh, just a warning. It does sound really scary. It, it, it's like a – it is made to sound scary. So it's a scary sound of people screaming. Fair warning. So that sound clip, the sounds used in the Well to Hell hoax tape appear to be a – and people f- figured this out – a looped and reprocessed version of a clip from a movie called Barren Blood from 1972. I looked it up and, hey, it stars Joseph Cotton. Everything comes <laughs> back to Joseph Cotton on this podcast. Is there a single topic that hasn't at some point led us back to Joseph Cotton? He was in so many films from The Third Man and Citizen Kane, you know, classics uh-huh. of, 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 of cinema from that era to uh, stuff like Soylent Green uh, and also various installments of Euro horror, including one of my favorites, uh, Screamers. The Island of the Fishmen. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, just a lot of trashy like uh, Giallo movies and mm-hmm. and 70s junk. So uh, the Barren Blood, I haven't seen it. I was I wish I'd had time to watch it last night because it looks like some – some righteous trash. Um, but it was directed by Mario Bava. It has that grimy Mario Bava movie kind of look. Uh, and the Snopes write-up traces the origin of this whole well-to-hell uh, hoax to a hugely embellished take on reports in Scientific American published in 1984 about a real drilling project called the Cola Super Deep Borehole, which uh, we'll get back to in a minute. So someone was literally like, well, if they're d- digging that deep, they're going to touch, they're going to reach hell, and then we're going to hear about it. And then someone said, well, I'll just go ahead and make that. I just saw this movie called Barren Blood, which, by the way, you you shared the trailer uh, clip with me. And if I'm not mistaken, the trailer itself has that uh, or at least a taste of that, the sound of hell in it. Oh, all the screaming? The screaming going on, yeah. 
I should also add, they did not, uh, th- in this story about the sounds from hell, they didn't dig near deep enough to reach hell. If hell's at the center of the earth, <laughs> right? like they, they didn't even, maybe they reached like the outer, the outskirts of a gigantic hell. I mean, earth would have to be so hollow for yeah. that, for like everything below like 14 something, point something kilometers down to be hollow. Yeah, and earth would then be mostly hell. Which is ridiculous. It may be more befitting of lay, of a of a theology that really embraces and cherishes the idea of hell as a vital aspect of its uh, of its structure, like because that's the ugly reality. Great, you have a creation that's mostly people sort tormented throughout all eternity, uh. with a thin layer of people sort of getting along on the surface. Uh, great creation. Yeah, I mean, I guess if you believe pretty much everybody goes to hell, hell's got to be huge. Yeah. But then how would or how would Earth have a magnetosphere with a hell this big? Where, <laughs> what's, where would the core dynamo effect come from? Uh, I have to look on Answers in Genesis for that one, Joe. <laughs> um, but, but, but wait, we were asking a question. We got sidetracked talking about the well to hell. Yes. That, no, the, we were asking a question about, so we know that Earth actually does get hotter as you go deeper down into the ground. Why does that happen? It's not because you're getting close to hell, but some Somehow it's getting hotter. Okay. So, yeah, the, the actual answer goes along these lines. So, ge- geologists calculate that for every mile you dig down, the temperature rises 15 degrees Fahrenheit and the pressure increases at a rate of 7,300 pounds per square inch, roughly. Go down deep enough and the temperature and pressure is enough to form diamonds. Mm-hmm. Now, this is something that uh, that uh, learned minds uh, noted, and uh, one one in particular was Lord Kelvin, who lived 1824 through 1907, and he theorized that this was due to the cooling of the Earth, and that 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 he could use temperature readings to actually calculate the age of the Earth. We talked about this in our uh, two episodes on the age of the Earth. Yeah. We talked about Kelvin's attempts to to gauge the age of the Earth this way. His, he was sort of on the right track, but his calculations were off. Right. And so this is just the short version of this. Uh, if you want a longer version, uh, we advise you to listen to that episode of the age of the Earth. I think it was a two-parter, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. So, but basically he thought, yeah, 20 million years seems about right. He was wrong uh, because uh, one of the reasons he didn't know about radioactivity in the Earth uh, contributing to the heat. He didn't know about convection cycles and the inner layers of the Earth. So there are actually multiple reasons that Earth gets hotter the deeper you go down. Right. And none of them are hell. Uh, so there are three main sources for heat in the deep Earth. There's heat from when the planet was formed and accreted. There's frictional heating caused by uh, denser core materials sinking to the center. And then there's heat from the decay of radioactive elements. And these causes are according to an explainer article by Quentin Williams, who's a professor of earth sciences at uh, UC Santa Cruz. So partially it's just always been hot since it was ever formed and it's been cooling off ever since. Partially there's like some rubbing going on down there that's causing some heat. And partially you've got like uranium and stuff that is decaying and and that fission causes heat. Yeah, but ultimately the Earth has this this inner heat cycle that's going on that's that's removed from the the heat that comes from the sun. But you see that – I mean like the heat that comes from the sun as well, I guess. These are are, uh, finite sources of heat, right? Because if you've got some heat that's just left over from the formation of the Earth, it's been slowly cooling down, it'll just keep cooling down until it gets colder and colder. Uh, the heat from the decay of radioactive elements, eventually those things will pass their half-life. They will just decay more and more until they reach stable isotopes. Though for some of them, this will take a really long time. Right. And we should also point out that mysteries remain about the interior of the Earth that we don't know, uh-huh. uh, uh, that we don't fully understand. One of the ways that we 
we hope to increase our understanding is by drilling down into it. Mm -hmm. uh, now, certainly not like sending people down to the mantle, uh, but certainly, but by reaching the mantle, that alone would be uh, uh, an important step towards better understanding the interior of the planet. Wait, are you telling me that that movie where they drill to the core, is it called The Core, is not scientifically <laughs> accurate? They're not sending people down there? Pretty much. I love science fiction that has some sort of a fabulous drilling submarine uh -huh. that, uh, that takes people down into the depths, usually to some sort of interior hollow earth scenario. Uh, I love those films, but it's just not ultimately not realistic. Uh, I thought like that movie. I haven't seen it. I feel like I should see it at some point because how the, dare you judge it without seeing it? Well, Joe. the premise is so funny to me because it's like normally when you've got some kind of journey to the center of the earth, that the Jules Verne novel that mm -hmm. makes sense because it has incorrect ideas about what's down there under the surface. It, right. You know, there's another land and it can have creatures and all that. So there's like stuff to do down there. With the core, I assume it just has a basically accurate idea that like the earth is made of rock and, you know, solid material. So what's down there? They're going on an adventure just drilling into solid material. <laughs> but where are the monsters? What's, the, what's there to do? Yeah, where are the ball, the Balrogs, right? I, I mean, I'd be happy to be surprised, but... So so anyway, the, the goal has been to drill down through roughly 25 miles of crust to reach the mantle, which makes up about 40% of the planet. One of the projects that had this aim was uh, the United States Project uh, Mohole, which took a shot at it in the late 50s and early 60s, but they lost their funding. funding. They made it about 557 feet down, uh, and this was a seafloor drilling. Hmm. But the more impressive one, the one that we referenced already, was the Kola Superdeep Borehole in Russia. Yeah. So this one, they managed to get down 40,230 feet or 12,262 meters. Uh, it was about 7.5 miles. They did this over 20 years of drilling. And ultimately, we're about what, well, halfway to the mantle at this point. The effort was abandoned in the early 90s when they encountered higher temperatures than expected, though. They were prepared for about 212 degree Fahrenheit temperatures, but encountered 356. And uh, 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 this is apparently still the record for how far we've successfully uh, successfully drilled down into our planet. And again, that's the one that, like, at least some of the uh, debunkers seem to think that the idea of the well to hell came from. Like, there were stories about this. So this was in 1984, I think, or in the 80s. Right. And then there were, like, articles about it in Scientific American and, and I, I assume, other publications. And that this probably got warped into the idea of the, the drilling and breaking through. Right. Like, if, if cola had actually hit hell, that would mean hell is in the crust of yeah. the earth. It's not even in the mantle. It's certainly not in the core. Uh, but, you know, I, I, I'm going to, I'll leave that alone for now. Uh, other deep holes of note, there's uh, BP's Deepwater Horizon, uh, which uh, when it was operational, uh, made it down, what, 30,000 feet or about five miles. Wow. Uh, Japanese drill ship uh, Chikyu reached uh, 10,000 feet or two miles into the seafloor. And uh, they're actually aiming to go much deeper with that particular uh, uh, drill project uh, because uh, they, they want to go even deeper. They, they plan to break the record uh, by around 2030 is when they, they look to start dr drilling. So in the future, we may, see, uh, we may see an even higher figure on our descent. So maybe that's when we actually reach the lava men. 
Maybe so. But but then again, it would just be, it wouldn't be us. It would be, uh, you know, the, the probe, a sensor or something of that nature. Uh, you mean it wouldn't be us at all? Right. Not, not just because humans, there's no reason to, for humans to go down. Right. As uh, far as I can tell, the deepest humans have been in the earth is probably 2.5 miles or four kilometers at the Mapone gold mine in South Africa. But that's deep. That's, that's deep. I mean, it's still very impressive, but it's just, it's such a small fraction when you start looking at the, uh, at the overall depths of the earth. All right. Well, on that note, we're going to take one more break. And when we come back, we're going to look to the future a little bit. Uh, What else could humans do underneath the surface of this planet or another planet? All right, we're back. All right. So we're talking about underground dwelling, uh, humans making a habitat underneath the surface. And one thing I think we've sort of touched on a little bit on the podcast before is space colonization – becoming a route for us to become the lava men of other planets, to, to, to go down under the surface of another planet with Lord Kinboat and set up residence there. Now, why would we do that? So other planets do not have all of the protections that Earth has from dangerous radiation. That's the main reason. Earth has a thick atmosphere to absorb uh, incoming radiation. It also has a magnetic field known as the magnetosphere. It's created by the dynamo of its iron-nickel core, and the ma- this magnetic field also repels incoming radiation. Other planets and objects in space do not have the same protective advantages. Uh, for example, the moon and Mars. Mars does not have a core dynamo to produce a strong magnetic field to repel incoming radiation. Also, Mars has a much, much thinner atmosphere than Earth. Uh, less than 1% as thick as Earth's atmosphere. So this just means when you're on the surface of Mars, there's a lot more radiation flux. The radiation is um, is more variable and you can get surges of it at different places places and times, and it's just generally also much higher. So without these radiation shields, long-term life on the surface of Mars for a colonist would be inconsistent, but in the net, it would be a high-level radiation bath. Like, levels seem to be such that you could probably survive there for a short period. It's not like you would just immediately die of radiation poisoning, Mm -hmm. but it would not be a good place to live long-term for, say, a permanent colony. For example, uh, to quote from a 2013 article by the space journalist Mike Wall, quote, a mission consisting of a 180-day cruise to Mars, a 500-day stay on the red planet, and a 180-day return flight to Earth would expose astronauts to a cumulative radiation dose of about 1.01 sieverts, measured by Curiosity's Radiation Assessment Detector, or RAD, uh, instrument indicate. To put that in perspective, the European Space Agency generally limits its astronauts to a total career radiation dose of one sievert, which is associated with a 5% increase in lifetime fatal cancer risk. So that's just for a 500-day stay on the surface. Now, of course, a lot of that radiation in that calculation there is coming from the trip to and from Mars, where you're in space, you're going to be getting the most then. Once you get to Mars, there's some reduction because you've got the planet behind you. That helps, you know. Uh, But you're still getting a lot bombarded from space, way more than you would get protected on the surface of the Earth. So one solution here once you get to Mars, is to go underground where the soil and rock above will help protect the colonists from radiation if they're going to be staying a long time. But uh, you can think about this in a few – number one is like, okay, let's say you want to dig a deep hole. That would be kind of difficult because it's – 
you know, you're on Mars. That's a lot of work to do. You have to bring literally everything with you. You have to bring your habitat. You have to bring your food, your air. Uh, and then on top of that, you're talking about having to bring the equipment to dig tunnels in the Martian surface and create a space for all this stuff to go and for you to live. Yeah, like an excavator or something like yeah. that. I mean, that, that, that's, that's rough. So one proposed workaround here is to establish colonist habitats in lava tubes. This has been proposed mm. for Mars and for the moon. Uh, so I, I put in a, a selection of images taken from satellite photos of things that look like openings to lava tubes on the surface of Mars, but I've got a really cool one that's a photo from the High Resolution Imaging Science Experiment, or HiRISE camera, which is on board the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter. I love this photo. It's very haunting. I believe this is taken from Pavonis Mons, but it's a crater, and then in the middle of the crater, there's clearly just a hole where you can see the shadow and the light falling across an inner cavity down below. And you can even see where, where like the sand from the crater is falling down into the hole. Oh, wow. So these lava tubes would have been created uh, because, of course, Mars and the moon had periods of volcanism in their past. Uh, the biggest volcano in the solar system, actually, is not on Earth. It's not even on the yellow volcano hell world of Io, the moon of Jupiter. It's on Mars. Olympus Mons is the biggest volcano in the solar system. It's uh, a volcano more than twice as tall as Mount Everest. And so you can find these lava tubes on, on Mars and the moon, and they could be not only somewhat suitable to house uh, uh, colonies, they can, they can in some cases be huge. One example I found is that uh, studies have shown the possible size of lava tubes on the surface of the moon to be just enormous. Like lunar lava tubes tend to be bigger than lava tubes on Earth. Based on leads and data from the Selene spacecraft and the GRAIL mission, uh, researchers at Purdue University were able to predict that at least one lava tube near a group of volcanic domes on the moon called the Marius Hills was at least large enough to, in to hold the entire city of Philadelphia inside it. Oh, wow. So space Philadelphia, <laughs> where space Rocky jogs. This uh, maybe this is where the their their sports mascot is from. The, the what's their sports mascot? Oh, don't they have a new sports mascot? The frightening red one with no face. Oh yeah, the googly eyed pervert thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, yeah, I think that's their their icon. Yeah. Oh, that's a moon man. Yeah. yeah. But no, this is this is incredible. The idea that these these are essentially just large caverns. Uh, in in the, the the planet, or in this case, the the lunar surface. Yeah, and I think this is it's because they are is because of the gravity of the moon being different. I think that they can tend to be larger on the moon than they usually are on Earth. This is comforting to anybody out there who is running a Dungeons and Dragons campaign uh, in the Underdark, where you you continually having uh, adventures encounter large caverns with cities in them. Mm -hmm. You can just look to the lunar example and say, "Well, see, here's." Here's how it might work. <laughs> but so anyway, I, I like to think that uh, our, our future astronaut descendants who go out to colonize other objects in the solar system, the ones who live on the moon or live on, live on Mars, might end up somehow being maybe culturally having some of the same environmental influences as the Neanderthals who made the rings of stalagmites deep down in the dark in southwestern France. Oh, wow. That is fascinating to think about. Like what are the – so, the, you know, some of the underground religions – 
are often referred to as like the idea of chthonic cults, you know, the the cults of the underworld. Mm-hmm. Are, are there certain ways that being in subterranean environments or going into caves or into catacombs or whatever tends to cause people to come up with certain cultural beliefs and religions? What do the religions of the lava tube dwellers look like? Ooh, I love that. I love that idea. Um you know, we'd be remiss in all of this if we didn't mention Total Recall, though, mm-hmm. because, of course, Total Recall, the original Total Recall, the Arnold Total Recall. The Verhoeven Total Recall. Yes. It, the, the, uh, the, the Michael Ironside Total Recall. Yeah. Uh, See you at the party, Richter. Exactly. This, one, th- this film features uh, underground habitats, and it's re- revealed that the early stages of, of those underground habitats for early colonists to Mars, they were essentially just caves that the people lived in. Yeah. Um, so, and, 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 that's, and one of the, the curious things is that lines up with human history and also some of these models regarding what uh, colonizing an off-world uh, habitat would consist of. And also teaches us not to put trust uh, in caring for the resources of one of these off-world colonies in the hands of a greedy, evil corporation overlord. Give the people the air. (laughs) Indeed. Give the people the air. Uh, Well, well, hopefully this is a good, uh, you know, first installment. I I want to think of this as a first installment on some perhaps deeper earth and deeper life studies. Like I said, I'd like to come back and talk about uh, the evolution of burrowing creatures. Mm -hmm. Even if part of that is just a reason to talk about tremors a little more, uh, I, I, we could definitely have some more fun with um, the idea of uh, of deep earth religions and the idea and religious ideas of the deep earth. Uh, yeah, there's a lot to explore here. Meanwhile, if you would like to dig deeper into Stuff to Blow Your Mind, head on over to StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That is, that is the home world. That is where you will find all of the podcasts we've recorded uh, going back to the very beginning, to the very core of the planet. You'll also find links out to our social media accounts. You'll find uh, also a little store there where you can buy some merchandise if you so desire. Show The show's logos, some various designs that line up with previous episodes. And if you would like to support the show, certainly buy some merch. But the best thing you can do is tell people about the show. Make sure you have subscribed to Stuff to Blow Your Mind and Invention, our, uh, our, our, the other show we're doing. And also rate and review us wherever you have the power to do so. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producers, Alex Williams and Tari Harrison. If you would like to get in touch with us to let us know feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.